Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Carrier's Edge podcast. The season finale, in the grand season finale of our, I don't know, 2018-2019 season of podcasts. This will be the final one before we check out mentally for the summer and spend our time not thinking about anything that would make for a good podcast. Yeah, I think that the next two months are not going to be very interesting. Although I think many people would argue that most of the podcasts are filled with things that don't make for a good podcast. That has never stopped us before. <laughs> Who are you anyway? Yes. Who am I? I am the announcer. I am the chorus. Uh, and general agitator, Mark Morrell, co-founder of Carrier's Edge. And, and with me today, a big surprise is Jane Jazrawi, the other co-founder of Carrier's I bet Edge. Nobody was expecting I that. I know. We never have anybody on. I think we should we need to have somebody on. I know I say that all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're tired of hearing it. And yet I continue to say it. Because until I get what I want, I just continue to say it. This is life with Jane. <laughs> Some would term that nagging. <laughs> I call it just continuing to repeat what I say. Although you do that, and, I, and my our son does that too. And just keep repeating it until someone acknowledges it. How did I get thrown under the bus in You this? do that too. Well, you, you were throwing me under the bus. I could tell. <laughs> I was about to. It was a I'm doing preemptive throw. throwing under okay. the bus. All right. Well, what do we got to talk about today? Exactly. I don't know. I, this is the issue with the summer. So you have things you no, want to talk about. I thought about. about it for a few minutes. We actually do have a few things to cover because we've done a few things since we last did one of these. Um, the last time we did a podcast, we were heading out to the True North Conference. So we can talk about that a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about your adventures with heavy equipment haulage and uh, some of the things that you found there. Um, I probably have some things to discuss that are happening, but we'll figure that out as we go. So let's start with the True North Conference that we attended for the second year. Now we, uh, it's located in Kitchener, Waterloo, Waterloo, which is two different places side by side. So they're just invariably known as KW and yeah, uh, it's weird because there's, uh, you know, it's not like they Well, Kitchener was there first. Kitchener was always, I always knew Kitchener. Waterloo, I didn't really know. I think until Rim actually moved in there and started with the gangbusters of Blackberry. I don't think Waterloo was much of anything at all, except maybe a university. And then everybody started, and Waterloo started getting bigger and bigger. And so Kitchener, Waterloo kind of. Because when I was younger, when I was living in, when I was going to high school in Milton, which is not too far from there, it was never called Kitchener-Waterloo. It was just Kitchener, and that's where you went for Oktoberfest. Yes, that's what it's known for. That's, yeah. That was the only thing it's Huge known Oktoberfest for. Huge Oktoberfest party. Um, but yes, the university started cranking out a bunch of tech people that started creating companies like uh, Open Text and later Research in Motion, and this huge explosion of tech companies there. And so... Well, actually, before you start um, saying whatever you were going to say, uh, it's interesting because when we were at the Collision Conference, which was another tech conference, they were talking about tech in Toronto and the Toronto area. And this is and how much there is is actually becoming a tech center and whether it will actually 
end up as a proper tech center like San Francisco or other places in the States or um, Seattle or, or something like that, it will remain to be seen how well Canadians support having a tech center. But it, but it is there. It is starting. Well, it's kind of gone through or is going through the, a, a similar change to what happened in Silicon Valley where originally the tech wasn't in San Francisco. It was down at the bottom of the bay, Palo Alto and all of those San places. Jose and Santa Clara and yeah. all those little burbs. And over time, it has started to migrate up into San Francisco proper. And the same thing is happening in Toronto, where it was Kitchener-Waterloo sort of popped. There was an early bit of a tech uh, hub in sort of northern part of Toronto in the Markham area and Richmond Hill, uh, when IBM started there in the, um, they had a large facility there in the eighties, but really Kitchener Waterloo emerged as this sort of Silicon Valley North. And for a time there was actually direct flights between the airport there. What was the Waterloo for a time, the Waterloo international airport that had direct flights to San Francisco, uh, that stopped now, but it sort of popped as a, a tech hub. And then over time, it started migrating into Toronto directly. Toronto has grown as a tech center on its own and has become quite a huge tech hub now, one of the largest in North America. So, yeah, it was very interesting going to the Collision Conference in May that it was kind of an international tech conference that was very focused on startups and younger companies and venture-funded tech, all of that sort of stuff. And then going to... I guess it was about three weeks later that we were in True North, which is supposedly a, a tech conference in Kitchener-Waterloo, but a very different set of um, speakers, very different audience, and very few of the speakers actually were talking strictly about tech. They're talking about the impact of tech and the cultural influences or the, uh, the social implications of tech and things like that. So it's a very different conference. And the audience didn't have a lot of actual tech companies that we would normally expect to see at these things. There was a lot of banks and a lot of government people, um, a lot of sort of large financial organizations that are supporting the tech industry in that area and larger tech companies from the region were there as well. Um, but it was a very different kind of conference and it, it's weird. We have this kind of love hate relationship with this thing, uh, but it's always an odd experience. And we've only been twice, and it's only two years old, so it has some room to grow. But I don't. It's weird because it it really annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> the conference itself, yeah. Now, but some of the speakers were fantastic. The speakers were fantastic, and I wonder. But here's the thing: is that there was a lot of, and this is kind of. I don't know if this has been going on with conferences or where the out uh, like the outside the conference event activities are almost more than the conference itself. So every day, like before and after that conference, there was like all kinds of basically parties happening and they kept telling uh, everybody, oh, go here and go there and this is sponsored by and go to this bar and go to this restaurant and, and Kitchener, basically everybody was involved because the entire downtown of Kitchener is sort of involved in this because it's so local. And it almost felt like they were more interested in the partying after 
the conference than they were in the conference itself. Not the speakers. The speakers were really good, but it, you just got the sense that there wasn't very much cohesion this year. They had so last year it was really good because it was their first year and it was their first album. You know, everybody puts all their heart and soul in the fifty thousand songs that they've saved up for their big day, and then the second album is like, huh, okay. Yeah. Like they didn't have a they didn't have a central theme. They had this tech for good idea that they carried over from last year. They had this whole thing about tech for good and making sure that tech is is something that is going to contribute to the common good rather than you know hack away or take advantage of the common good. And they had this whole thing that they wrote down like a constitution of how it was going to happen and then they and they did it last year and then this year they kind of talked about it some of the speakers talked about it but that was it mm-hmm. that was the end of it and it's sort of like i thought this was a living document i thought this was going to continue where it, it, we just partying now is that <laughs> what we do is just you know take advantage of all the money that is swimming around this conference so that annoyed me there were some things that we both got out of it that I think really sort of shifted our thinking in different ways. Um, and, and we we each had some different sessions that we went to. I think we sort of, well, we went to a lot of the same sessions, but we had different ones that really rose to the top for both of us. And the one that really jumped out um, that we both had a, a lot of eye-opening thoughts while listening to was the first one, the initial mm-hmm. keynote speaker, Thomas Friedman, who's he's really good, a uh, columnist for the New York Times and an author. And he was there plugging his current book, um, which is uh, I've gone out and bought it. And now I'm reading it. And it is the very, I think, poorly titled but excellent book. Thank you for being late, which really should have been titled. Here's all of the crazy things that are happening in the world that are changing the world massively and that you need to be thinking about. And he talked about the pace of change in technology, um, the pace of change and the effects of globalization and the interconnectedness of the whole world now. And he talked about um, the climate change side of it as well. And I, he, oh, you're going to talk about the like how quickly it's moving, how quickly technology is moving as opposed to how human beings can can handle all of that change? Well, that was part of it that really stuck out for me. He talked Mm -hmm. about technology is changing more quickly now than it ever had. And he talked about 500 uh, 500 or 1,000 years ago, technology changed very slowly and it would spread, those changes would spread very slowly as well. So you would perhaps have a technological change every three generations or so. Yeah, like the printing press. Yeah, it took a, a long time for that change. to spread out. And that, and that was sort of a huge inflection point in society, the development of the printing press that enabled a whole ton of other things. And it took a while for that to spread, maybe three generations or more. Now, the pace of technological change is so much faster that rather than one change every three generations, it's now three changes every generation. So that's a huge change and it's only getting faster. And he had a graph that he talked about um, and it's, it's in his book as well, where he shows one line is this sort of increasing, slowly increasing line um, that is how much humans can adapt to change, how adaptable they are. So they get better at adapting to change over time and that is speeding up. But the pace of change of technology 
is a totally different curve. So it started way below the ability to adapt, which is the printing press time. And it has steadily increased. And now it is changing way faster than what people can adapt to, which is part of what makes people think they're sort of lost. They feel sort of out of touch with things. But at the same time, they problems come up like the Facebook mess and like the things that are happening with Google and privacy and all of these other things that are happening because technology is changing much faster than people can adapt to it. So that was really an interesting uh, part of the presentation to talk about that. And the uses the printing press as an example uh, of a huge inflection point at opening up a lot of um, technological change in society and then he also talks about, and this is one of the first chapters in his book, the fact that 2007 was essentially the same thing, the same uh, technological inflection point where so many things exploded that nobody even really noticed. So you're aware of each of them, but nobody really caught on to the fact that there was this massive explosion in technological change. And 2000- I it, well, it was a whole bunch of events that occurred in 2007 and and. We And he looked back on it and started listing all of these major changes that you're talking about. But nobody seemed to notice at the time, which was yeah. kind of a cool thing uh, about it. And part of the reason was is because of the meltdown. Yeah, this huge economic crash that happened right after that. But starting in sort of late 2006, the end of 2006 into early 2008, there was a ton of things that happened in sort of late 2006 Google bought YouTube early January or early 2007, January, the iPhone, original iPhone got announced. And then he had all of these other things as well that were huge uh, technology uh, shifts, like uh, tech companies that were going public because they're hitting a certain scale. And the Did cost Facebook of computing. Did Facebook go public in 2000? Oh, Facebook opened yeah. up from schools to the general oh, public. Oh, that's what it was. Um, and like several things like this that are all you look at it now and it's like, that's the starting point of each of those things had their own hockey stick growth curve and all of them started in 2007. So you look at that and you think, oh, it's no wonder so much stuff has exploded since then. And it takes time for these things to really have the effect felt. And now over the past couple of years, we're really feeling it, but that was really a very interesting shift in that the cost of connectivity has gone down, the cost of um, computing has dropped dramatically the amount of things that people can do, the connectedness. And he has stats in the book talking about when the iPhone came out, how much it completely gutted AT&T because all of a sudden the bandwidth that people were expecting was exponentially more than what they were doing before with regular phones. So they had to go back basically to the drawing board and rebuild their entire or network or their whole architecture. And they moved from hardware to software driven networking, which allowed them to have exponentially more capability on the existing uh, pipes. And that has led to this huge growth of bandwidth. And now everybody expects to be connected with high speed all the time. You know, you expect to be able to run high definition video on your phone from anywhere. And most of the time you can. And that's all because of stuff that really sort of exploded in 2007. Has it, has it been? Oh, wait, YouTube started as well. YouTube uh, was out, but it got bought by a Google at the end of 2006. Oh, okay. So it was right around that time that Google started applying their 
a huge machine to YouTube um, and several other things as well. Uh, I think something major happened with Twitter around that time and like a lot of social media stuff started exploding, but other things like development tools and things that allow people to create stuff much more quickly, um, Amazon web services and those kind of approaches that allow people to start companies, um, machine learning hit a, a, a critical Something point. happened with Amazon too in 2007. I think that was actually, there was a big turning point with all of those things. And I don't remember all of them now, but it would just, when he was saying it, we're like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. And I was like, holy crap, there was a lot that happened at that time. Yeah. But everybody was looking the other way because you had this huge economic meltdown that came, really started in late 2007 and or the seeds of it started in late 2007 and through 2008 is when the meltdown really started. So while this is happening, you got these two huge forces moving in opposite directions. And that's one of the things that he talks about in terms of the disconnectedness and the dissatisfaction. And he talks about it, everybody being sort of blown up. All of these different institutions are blown up because you've got this tech is just exploding massively, but at the same time, economically, people are, are just getting crushed. So that ends up with more and more uh, separation and distance between those two groups. And it just causes more and more problems. So overall, the uh, True North Conference was an interesting experience. It got us some ideas and uh, set us off into our summer, which we normally spend doing a bunch of planning and thinking. So it's always good timing there. Outside of that, I know you've been working on uh, a couple of courses. You've got a lot of stuff happening and have your team has cranked a lot of stuff out recently, but I know you've been struggling with the heavy equipment or I guess digging into the heavy equipment securement uh, challenges. So let's talk a little bit about that fun. It wasn't so much that it was challenging, I don't think. It was more that um, it was more that we were going by the practical cargo securement handbook. And what's in that handbook uh, it wasn't making there was something that wasn't making sense. And what so we had the whole module sort of finished, like in a storyboard format. But I kept looking at it and thinking it was wrong. something was wrong. Something was wrong. And it's the only place where there's really a significant difference between the U.S. and Canada. And it's a very small difference. And that's basically how how much a heavy vehicle has to weigh. But what I realized afterwards is that the Canadian regulations and the U.S. regulations, because the Canadian ones are the North America, uh, sorry, the standard number 10 the um, there's a number of standards, safety standards, and this is cargo securement is number ten, and it's heavy vehicles kind of falls under division seven, which is heavy vehicles, light vehicles, and flattened vehicles, flattened or crushed, and um, and it's called heavy vehicles, and then in the U.S. it's not called heavy, it's not called hmm. that, it's called heavy equipment, vehicles, and machinery. Oh, okay. So. The book is written with heavy vehicles, equipment, and machinery. and But because you're trying to add in the Canadian and the U.S. 
parts, it wasn't making sense. And it makes sense in a handbook, but mm-hmm. it didn't make sense as a course. Right. So I had to go back and go back to the actual regulations. And I was stunned to find that the regulations are like three paragraphs long <laughs> in each country. Like there's nothing. There's basically, you have to have four tie downs. They have to be direct tie downs and, um, and you have to tie down all of your bits and pieces. So basically any accessory equipment, like any, any articulated equipment, anything that could be moved needs to be tied down separately. And that's it. Hmm. That's, you know. Well, I guess it doesn't need more than three paragraphs to say that then. Well, the rule doesn't, but the training does, and it doesn't have to be huge amounts. And the course is pretty short, but the issue is that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of knowledge that's assumed already. Hmm. This is building on a whole bunch right. of other things. And so what things are we, what things do you have to have in there to build on? And then you have to think of things like, well, what if you're going across a border? Well, if you're going from Canada to the U.S., you're, you're pretty much, we have to follow the Canadian regulations anyway. But if you're coming from the U.S. into Canada, then you have to remember that it's not 10,000 pounds, it's 40 it's 9,900 and something. Hmm. So that's kind of what has been happening. It's, it, and it's gone through like 50 rewrites and for no good reason, besides the fact that we didn't, we went, started from the handbook and for this, and usually starting from the handbook, it's fine. But for this one, we had to go back to the regs. And also like things like, um, chain binders which aren't mentioned in the handbook but if you're using chains as tie downs then you should be using chain binders so that's something that um you know part of this course development process is trying to find all the bits of information that are assumed knowledge and putting that assumed knowledge down on paper um which is what good training is. It doesn't assume that you know anything. And assumed right. knowledge is that sort of background. Yeah, if you're using chain as tie downs, you should have a chain binder or a load binder. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've never used chain tie downs, you don't necessarily know that. Yeah. So you want to have that. The other uh, kind of assumed knowledge is that whole going back and forth across the border. What do you, what rules are you mm. following going back and forth across the border? And um, so that kind of thing has to, I have to, and we do that with all the courses. We take the assumed knowledge and put it on paper. And that's, mm. it's tricky, but it's not. Well, a lot of times that assumed knowledge isn't really documented anywhere. So you end up creating sort of this complete package that is, one of the few or sometimes the only complete package of this knowledge available in the industry. Oh yeah. Vehicle inspections was full of assumed knowledge. I think actually, I think I should look that up and see if anybody's written anything about assumed knowledge because it's, I mean, it's not a trucking thing by itself. It's not Hmm. specific to trucking. It's everywhere. It's just, you know, you're in a, an industry forever and you just start figuring that everybody knows what you mean by, this phrase and really someone who's not in the industry has no clue and that happens in trucking all the time and it's not just and i think when you're outside the industry people think that it's mostly like the trucking slang Mm -hmm. from cb radios but that's not it and that's not all of it i mean there's all kinds of like just binders what's a binder Mm -hmm. you know what's the difference between a load binder and a chain binder well most of the time nothing so 
you know, there's 50 words for the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a bogey is a... <laughs> All the fun you had with weights and dimensions. Yeah, I can't remember what a bogey is now. It's... I The it, double, uh, double tires. That's right? what it is, is a dual. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also a term used for like a... a uh, what is the the alligator like the tires dead tires in the middle of the road, mm. which is also an alligator or something. Yeah, I can't remember, but it like all of but bogey I think is another word for that. So it's mm. you know you can really just go crazy with the glossaries, and then when you're trying to translate stuff, <laughs> <laughs> it's like don't translate this word. Nobody uses it in any other language. It's, it's specifically English. So I have a lot of lot of notes when I send it to translators and and voiceover people. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, that's another case where a lot of times there's been really nothing defined, like there really hasn't been much official. In a lot of cases, there's been nothing officially translated. So you're kind of uh, hacking through the jungle and deciding what should this translation be. Well, I'm not. Um, no, your translators are. <laughs> my translators are doing it. And sometimes they have their own ways of finding it out. Um, but my issue is mostly about what acronyms should be translated, what English words should be translated, because sometimes you don't, you shouldn't be translating them. So I might be wrong. I'm like, I'm kind of going with some educated guessing. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of people I can ask. No, I I saw something about that recently relating to CSA and the basics. And they talked, of course, the CSA basics, but each letter is an acronym, is part of an acronym. So um, normally you wouldn't translate that. In ours, it's still basics. Right. We don't don't translate it. They all say it as le basique, but it's still B A S I C. But I saw somebody who had done a Spanish version and translated it as um, basica. They had actually translated that word, um, the acronym, rather than leaving it and just translating the underneath pieces, which I thought was an odd choice because that's certainly something like um, basics. You're always going to see it as basics, regardless of whether you're speaking Spanish or French, it's always going to be presented as the basics because that's how FMCSA puts it out there. Actually, so. I had a an interesting version of that because in our accident scene course, there is a an acronym that we use that um, stop. Oh, I can't remember what it is, but it's like stop, assess, document, and then something else. Report. Yeah, document and report, a report mm-hmm. document or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stop, a s- stop report, do- it's something like that. I can't remember because it's like I haven't looked at that course for a while. But when I got the trans, I have recently had it translated into Spanish. And when I got it back, um, the person who was putting it online basically came and asked me about what to do with the uh, translation for stop because it was too long to put on a stop sign, which is how I have uh, it yeah. in the course. And so I was looking at it and it was like, well, that's the translation for it, but we need it to to fit. 
and the translation for stop, like so in French, it's easy. Um, this the word for stop on a stop sign is short, and you mm-hmm. can fit in on a stop sign. But in Spanish, the word that's on a stop sign was not the word that the translator wanted to use. Hmm. So I had a so different we went context back, of stop. Well, it is it not stop, as a verb, but as a as a noun, something like that. It was something, it wasn't incorrect. Mm -hmm. It was, it just was not easily able to fit on a stop (laughs) sign because it was like eight letters long. So on a stop sign, the word is like paso, I think. I can't remember, but there's two different words that you can use. So I went back and forth with my translator and with my voiceover, Spanish voiceover guy who also does some translation and always has lots of things he wants to say. Uh, he's very good with that. Um, and he he was basically saying, well, you know, this it could be like this, it could be like this. And the translator was saying the same thing. So she changed it so that we could fit it on the fit it on the stop sign. But it's really it's the same thing with basics. It's you know, when you're trying to teach someone something and they, they're never going to see the word basics in Spanish. Right. So why would you teach them in a way that is going to just be a little bit confusing? Yeah. Like show them, show them the word basics. That's, and I don't remember if I ever told Denis to actually translate it into French that way. I think he just automatically did it because mm-hmm. it makes more sense. Cause you need to learn the, you need to learn the acronym rather than the, the, uh, just a direct translation of a word. Yeah. And the, it, there's a lot of things with translation that are kind of like that where, and we got a bad translation back from a different translator. And one of the things that Denis, who's our normal translator, said was that it sounded like the translation was done word for word. Like it was a direct English to mm. French or French to English, tra- sorry, English to French translation. And I was like, well, isn't that what you do? (laughs) Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Yeah. Isn't that translation? He's like, no, that's not how you would say it in French. So that's a really big, that's a big issue with translation is you don't want to have that word for word. This is what each word means. You really need context. Mm -hmm. Which sort of opens up the next subject to talk about, which is that you are... Hiring a dedicated translator. I am. Which will probably come as no surprise given how much we talk about translation and the challenges of doing it right and doing it well and how much of it we have on the go with the various different languages that uh, it makes sense to bring on somebody full time. Yeah, well, right now we're doing all the cargo securement courses in French and in Spanish. And that's a big project that French is nearly completed and Spanish is kind of halfway. Mm hmm. Um, what else is accident scene has been translated into four languages now. Um, and I think nearly going to be released in both Spanish and Punjabi. So that's good. But yeah, I need a, I need someone to do all of that work. So it would be primarily a French translator and we need a person who really understands Quebecois French. I mean, someone who under, who will be able to, to know what the terminology used in Quebec and New Brunswick and those and places that are speaking really Canadian French <laughs> understand. So I've gotten some resumes that are where the education has been really, I can tell it's Parisian French and, and that's not going to work. 
just be I think that I would probably just have an issue with all the translation. Um, but you've so, had some really interesting resumes come in already. And uh, definitely there's a lot of people that are very qualified that are out there. Oh, yeah. Most of them have masters or better. Yeah. Like that, there's a, I've only had really, I don't know, maybe about 20 resumes. And I have at least five or six masters and a couple of doctorates. Wow. And, yeah. Like, whoa. Alrighty then. I, so, yeah, I keep on hiring people who are more educated than me. Um, but what I always find funny with these things, we put out a posting and you can tell from all of the resumes that come in, you get a really good sense of where everybody is clumped in a particular segment. So, oh yeah, the translators that are all doing medical and, uh, and government type work. Yeah. You That's know. where the bulk of it is in Canada. Is but it was the same thing when you're hiring instructional designers and so many of them are coming out of the banks or they're coming out of Loblaw companies, which is a large grocery store chain. Um, but just that, not any of the other grocery store chains, not insurance, not any other big companies, but banks and Loblaws. And for translators, yeah, a lot of medical, uh, a lot of government Rogers, Rogers, cable company. Oh, okay. Cable and phone company, they, there's a lot of a lot of instructional designers coming out of there. But yeah, for translators, it's medical and government. And I found the same thing when we look at um, resumes for technicians, for development staff. So where are they all coming from? They're coming out of the banks. There are a lot of people that are doing uh, one-year contracts at different banks on specific projects. And then they go to another bank for another specific project. And then they'll may, they may have some time at a tech company or something doing more of sort of typical employee type work. But a lot of it is contracts at the banks doing stuff. All the banks have got terrible web um, applications and they're all working on fixing that and doing better mobile stuff. And so they're hiring tons of developers, but they're only putting them on short term contracts. So people get fed up with that and they start looking for full time jobs. And translation is like that, too. There's a lot of people who are doing short-term contracts. And our the, the uh, Denis, who does our translation, uh, we would love to have him full-time, but he won't come off to our contract. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, he does different stuff. He's, he's a musician. He does voiceover, and he does um, translation, translation work. So he doesn't want to have a full-time job doing translation work because it'll get in the way of his activities as a musician and, and as a traveler and as a world traveler is <laughs> yes. spending all his time in Spain. Yeah. So, but I have had a lot of, like, I mean, cause I, the posting that I, that I put on really only said English, French translator, but I'm getting people who have all kinds of mm-hmm. languages and also people who aren't, um, who don't appear to be French based on their names. So mm-hmm. often you assume that French people are going to have French last names. And there's a lot of names that are not French. Actually, the majority, I, I think I've only had two resumes where I it sounds like a French name, hmm. which is weird, but I'm not bothered. And one person who can speak Punjabi as well, that would be helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the latest resume that I saw, there was French and Spanish and something else. Yeah. So we need to find one person who's a translator for French, Spanish, and Punjabi and just cover all of them at once. Actually, I'm fine to have to get external people doing French and the French and Punjabi translation and use an in-house person as the QA Mm. because it's, 
it's expensive to, and this is what we've done, is gotten something translated by a new external source and then had to get it checked. Right. So Denise will check it, but then Denise charging for right. the checking. And if I had someone internally, then they could that could be part of their job. Hmm. You know, when when we send out translations, let's take a look at it. How do you evaluate it? That's the other thing. I don't have any particular skills in translation. All I know, I have no idea if any of our French content. Well, I'm pretty certain that Denise's French content is fine, but we have a bit of a patchwork of uh, translation. So I would like to sort of get someone who's good with standardizing it. Mm-hmm. And there, apparently there's all kinds of translation tools and standards and yeah. stuff I have no knowledge of. We need to start building that kind yeah, of process. Yeah, yeah. And I, what I find, and this is something that you're experiencing, is as you hire people to take things off your plate, you you start with it because for you it was the um, the partner Mm-hmm. the partner manager that you were going crazy doing all this partner management and you didn't have time to do anything else. And, and still doing it badly because I didn't have time to do it properly. And also not knowing necessarily what you should be doing because you've never had any experience in it. So, you know, messing up or not knowing the best practices. What? Our partners were beautifully cared for. I the ones that I actually remembered to talk to. I think they're mostly... I think they're mostly, we try really hard to take care of them properly, but what we're doing is not, is not a normal model. So it's not like you can. Well, there's just getting to be a lot of them. We've got over 50 different partners now in different and all different segments from straight resellers to uh, wholesalers to, you know, insurance people and associations and independent consultants. And then the hardware people where we've put our app on their devices and then people we've integrated with. So there's so many different types of partner that it was just way more than I can manage. So yes, I I brought on a dedicated person coming up on a year now that uh, Courtney's been here and she's done a a great job of getting that sorted out. But as you're saying, you take that off your plate and look, a new problem. (laughs) Yeah. And then you just notice the other thing. Yeah, It's like, Oh, should have been paying attention to this too. Which is so now? Well, you've had a, you have a couple of things that are taking. Now you've you found your new thing that you have to solve. But my new thing that I have to solve is um, once I get the translation done with. Well, I don't know what problem I'm going to be solving after that. It will present itself. Yes, it's I never know. Never one you're expecting. Well, that's the thing. I well, I also am going to get. I'm going to try and build a library of uh, e-learning images. This Ooh. is the other thing that I'm working on. Yeah, I have. Um, we have a because what happens in the e-learning industry for the course developers, people who do it for white collar like regular e-learning, they usually so there's a tool called Articulate which I can finally now remember the name of this product. I know it's not like I'm not like, ah, 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 it starts with an A, I know. So anyway, Articulate is one. Adobe has some e-learning stuff. Um, Lectora is another one. Yeah. There's a a bunch of different e-learning sort of companies uh, that have products that are basically create your e-learning. We don't use them because we have our own built into the product that, at some point in the future, we will be able to release to everybody uh, when it's not in its beta stage. And 
you can get all of these images from them, but you have to either buy their product or you have to give them a subscription. And they're also not going to be very, they're not all that useful for us because white collar people and blue collar people don't dress the same way. Hence the color. color. And they, yeah. So it's difficult to, you know, you're looking for all of these office, you know, you're looking at all these office people and it's like, great, but none of those people are going to drive a truck. So I can't use you. Yeah. You can't use that in the context that we're using it. And, and even if I could find a bunch of people, I don't want to pay a subscription to a company that, um, I don't own the photographs. I want those pictures. So I'm going to try and I'm going to engage a photographer and and get them done specifically for us. Yeah. So we kind of came up with that. What's also nice about that idea is that once we do have this available, have these tools available to customers, there will be a a library of stock images that they could take advantage Mm -hmm. of as well. Uh, Yeah. If I get them done myself, then like, or if Carrier's Edge gets it done, mm-hmm. then we could resell those for sure. Um, the stuff that I already have that I use that I've purchased for yeah, our stuff, stuff I can't resell. About. No, the stuff that we create. Right. You're talking about building a library of right. your own. Um, but that would be something that would be available to customers as they're using the course creation tools. They would have access to some of these images as well. Now we're going to get people all excited about a course creation tool that is about a year out. Coming very soon in the next five years. Yeah, Promised for the last 10. I know. It's uh, it's being worked on now. I know, which is great because we have a lot of people who are hammering away at it. So a lot of good, we'll have a lot of good testers. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be nice when it's done. So what are you doing, Mark? Well, um... One of the big new things that is happening outside of working on the uh, content creation, um, one of the big things that's happening over the summer is a, another thing that has been requested by some customers, but we've got one particular implementation that's really pushing it, and that is the ability to create certificate programs um, and have people eligible for a certificate when they complete a certain set of requirements. So, um, and this is being driven initially now by FedEx, who's having this requirement uh, for their contractors to have different levels of education. And in their case, it's going to include a combination of completing some courses, but also some practical activities and some observations on the job and things like that, sort of a multifaceted uh, set of requirements. And when people complete them, they will be finished a certain level and then from there they can move on to another level and keep going up through this hierarchy of different certification levels. Or I guess technically certificate levels because certification in the U.S. has a whole different connotation. Everybody's staying away from that. But a certificate. In our system, we call them all the same thing. Um, But uh, that's uh, the initial build of that is going to be starting sort of an early pilot uh, middle of July, so in another week or so. And then we'll be building out the rest of the pieces uh, for that uh, over the summer. But I think it's going to be kind of cool. It, it's building on a lot of the stuff that we did with the LCV and wheel certification So programs. are we going to allow all our customers to? Once it is finished, right now it's it's a specific implementation 
And once we get that sort of buffed out and the rough edges are, are cleaned off of it, then we will add that in, likely add that in for other customers as well. That's but we have cool. to see. Um, yeah, I know there are some particularly larger fleets that have asked for that ability. And I, I think at some point we will probably extend those uh, functions to them. But this is the initial project that I think ever since we did the LCV program where we've got a very complex certification process that has a lot of different pieces to it and the requirements and the workflow management and all of that. Ever since we did that, I've known that at some point we'll want to make that functionality available in the core system for people to create their own internal like corporate certification type programs. Um, And we just haven't had an opportunity or haven't had somebody who is really pushing for it that allows us to make it real. Because if you just try and do it on your own without somebody who's actually going to use it, it you n- never get the workflow quite right. So. And, and LCV, the LCV certification process that you're talking about is the one that we did for a certification in Ontario. Yes, it is Ontario and the Atlantic provinces, um, that program. And it's, is very sophisticated. There's a lot of pieces in it. And, um, some of them would not be applicable outside of the province, uh, but there are a great many of them that could be adapted and applied into the general system. So even things like um, being able to track classroom courses and having event management that originated in that program because they have to track that sort of thing. Um, One of the new features that we'll be adding for this FedEx implementation is being able to track uh, on the road observations and practical activities oh, and things like that. checklist kind of thing. Checklist type stuff and being able to mark that somebody has completed a particular task. So, Would you be able to do that on a mobile device? Um, that's a good question. I'm not because sure. Because if you think about it, if you're doing on-road testing. Well, ultimately that's the direction I want to go with the mobile app is that you can do that sort of thing. Follow your path and have it keep track of your, your path, integrate with maps and the GPS and identify all the things that people do and make notes along the way, all of that sort of stuff. But for the initial, it's mostly going to be check that something was completed and I think maybe upload a, a file, a paper checklist, uh, but document that it happened on this date and this person certifies that it, it happened. Yeah, and you have, a, you have a record. You have an yeah. electronic record of it. Yeah, so that actually uh, I think is going to be ready for testing next week. Ooh, see, this is what we're doing the whole time we're not doing podcasting, trying to get all this finished. Yes. Yeah. So the next, the next sort of public appearance that we're going to make is probably not until September. Right. Well, we're going on hiatus. For we the summer. are. And the. You'll uh, have to watch reruns. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy the reruns while we're off. Pardon? Uh, enjoy the reruns while we're off and then we'll come back in September sometime. For Maybe. the new fall schedule, which <laughs> <Yeah>. is, <laughs> this is how TV used to work. Yeah. Well, much like TV, uh, our podcast started out running a fairly lengthy season. And I think the first year we did it all through the summer as well. And then we started realizing that we needed to take a break from this through the summer and recharge. And the season is getting shorter and shorter. So now like TV starts in like October after the World Series is over, basically is when the main uh, network schedule starts and then it's done in May. So it's like a 
a seven month and a bit schedule now. Yeah, and now, you know, sometimes you take a break. Oh, Halfway yeah, through, you do half a season middle. and then it'll pick up in three months. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it's Netflix crazy. and HBO have sort of thrown a wrench into that because they have shows that will start their season in April or July or. But they've also, uh, Netflix has also done the whole, th- well, Black Mirror has a three episode season or a two episode season or you get 11 episodes. And so that's, yeah, we're not going to do that. Well, we should keep the option open. Have a two episode season? <laughs> Three, yeah. <laughs> or six episode or something. Like what Game of Thrones did. It was 10 episodes and then it was seven and six. And Yeah, but we have to have a, some great battles though. Well, Very those good. are inevitable. <laughs> if the two of us are doing one of these podcasts, at some point there's going to be a great battle. The is question the is really just, do I edit it out or not? <laughs> And on that note, is there anything else that we wanted to talk about? Um, I think that kind of covers what we're working on and what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So I think we can wrap it up from there. All right. Everybody good. have a great summer. Yes. We will see you back in the fall. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.